It's that time of week again. Welcome back to Parsha Panorama. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Vaera, and boy, do we have a lot to cover. We are coming off of a conversation that Hashem and Moshe were actually in the middle of. The Chumash, you can say in a certain sense, it left off on a little bit of a cliffhanger, um, the nature of which was that Moshe Rabbeinu complained to God, saying, Hey, Hashem, you told me that I should go down to Mitzrayim and speak to Paro, and the culmination would hopefully be that we would, um, that things would get better, and that I'd be able to bring the Bnei Israel out of Mitzrayim. But things only got worse. Um, the question itself is a little bit um, strange. The truth is, we could have addressed this last week in Parsha Shmos, um, and that is uh, the reason why it's strange is because Hashem has seemed to seem to have indicated that he was going to harden Paro's heart, an issue that we're going to have to discuss. But nonetheless, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't understand why things should have to get worse before they get better. Now, for a little bit more on why things had to happen the way they did, you can revisit last week's Parsha Panorama Panorama for Parsha Shemos, where we addressed if the Exodus was just one big setup and why there has to be a Godless before there is a Geula. And I think the answer to this question can be found there as well. And if you're not sure, you can always reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. Speaking of which, before we do anything further, I want to thank our sponsors. And if you want to sponsor, you would reach me at the same email address that I just mentioned, and I'll mention it again in a second. But I want to thank our sponsors, Yona and Chani Laster, for sponsoring for multiple podcasts, as well as Yaakov and Yafa Landau for doing the same thing. Thank you so much. If you want to sponsor, reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com, thedata, then base, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. Okay, so now looking at Parshas Ve'era, and one of the questions you have right off the bat, so we mentioned, again, so what was the nature of that cliffhanger that I alluded to? If, if we can call it a cliffhanger... Um, definitely not um, a cliffhanger to the same degree that uh, Mikates ended off on, um, but that's you know that's an old topic. But what happened was Moshe complained to God, saying that things only got worse, and then Hashem responded, "Now you will see." Then Vaira seems ostensibly it's the it's the continuation of a, of the conversation. Hashem says, "Oh, um, I appeared to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov." I didn't make them. Um, I, I didn't relate to them with my name of Yudke Vovke. I related to them with my name Shakai, and Rashi talks about the different meanings of the names. Shakai represents God's limitations that you don't always see the entire picture. That's the nature of of nature in this world that we don't always see the full picture. But Yudke Vovke represents Hashem's name of repaying His promises and giving reward where it is due, and that says Hashem. I did not show to the Avos. They didn't complain to me, but you did. And so this is going back to what Rashi in last week's Parsha alluded to, that Moshe is going to see what's going to happen to Mitzrayim. Now you'll see, but you won't see uh, when the Bnei Israel ultimately go into Eretz Yisrael, when we conquer the 31 kings. Now, that is how the Parsha begins. But one question that you have to consider, which is not a question we're going to spend so much time on, but that is... Why this had to be? Uh, this, the, why is there a parsha break between Shmos and Veira? Isn't Hashem in the middle of talking to Moshe if they're having a conversation? So that could all go into one parsha. We could start the new parsha after their conversation is finished. 
So look really closely at the Pesukim. You'll see that apparently it is a new conversation. So maybe we'll come back to that. But before we do, um, let's go through the sections of the Parsha. And then there are a bunch of large picture, global, you know, wide, um, panoramic questions that we have to address. There's a lot of them, but I think they will, you know, I, I think they are all dependent on one another, so we'll be able to weave them together, hopefully, before we finish tonight. Okay, so the sections that I have in this Parshas Va'era, um, we see that, first of all, what is Va'era about? Largely, it seems to be about the Makos, but of course, it's not about all of them. So this is important. We'll have to come back to that as well. Now, the specifics of the Parsha, I have 10 sections, and the 10 sections are fairly easy. I wouldn't say it's as easy as 10 sections, 10 makos, because we don't have all 10 makos in this Parsha, but it's 10 sections, and most of the sections are the Parshios. Sorry, that's not the Parshios, the makos. Um, but so section number one is Hashem and Moshe, their debate resuming. And then, then section number two, very strangely, we get lineage of Reuven, Shimon, and then Levi, up until we meet Moshe and Aaron. Um, this, you know, this always reminded me and my brothers of when a sitcom, uh, Lahavdil, um, it gives you the opening scene, and then after the opening scene, it cuts to the theme song and the credits. It's like, well, we, we met Moshe and Aaron in last week's Parsha, but we didn't meet them formally. So now we're formally meeting them, you know, starring Moshe and Aaron, and then we meet the entire cast, and then we, we see the names of the director and the producers, and then we learn that this was recorded in, the live stu- in front of a live studio audience. So, um, so Lahavdil, Lahavdil, Lahavdil. But the question is why the Torah would do this here if um, the Torah is, in fact, not a sitcom. So I can give a couple of answers to that really quickly right now, but only really quickly because it's not really what we're focusing on tonight. And then we'll go back to the sections. Rashi and Ramban both have similar answers talking about how the Chumash... Um, well, and, and actually, no, they, they talk about why we mentioned Ruven and Shimon. So um, just, just to understand, the reason why all the Mepharshim understand that we are getting the lineage for at all is because it wants to trace the lineage of Moshe and Aaron, so you should see who Moshe and Aaron are. So the question is, why are we doing that now? And if we're doing that just so we could meet Moshe and Aaron, why are we getting the lineage of also Reuven and Shimon? So for this, so Rashi and Ramban both say that we're trying to maintain the order, and that um, Ramban adds that you shouldn't think that Reuven um, was no longer the Bechor, um, for, for any purposes. He was still the Bechor for certain purposes. Um, and just because Levi was on the rise doesn't mean that the, that the order of the children changed or that Shimon was disqualified or something like that. Rashi says this much that Reuven and Shimon were not disqualified from the family just because they were rebuked. You shouldn't think that only Levi did shuva. Everyone was, uh, was, in, good, was in a good place. Um, you can look at Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch has a great explanation as to why uh, these are mentioned. Um, he talks about how you should recognize um, there are really two cautionary ideas that Hirsch says. Recognize that just because Moshe and Aaron were really great doesn't mean that they were superhuman. They were humans. They were born to, um, to flesh and blood, to man and woman, and they had cousins from Ruvain and Shimon. They were, they were a family. They were all humans. So even if you, they, they seem to you know, perform wonders, recognize that they were only humans. And then Rav Hirsch, coming from the opposite end, he says, realize that that um, you know that not everybody could be Moshe and Aaron. That um, you know you, you would think maybe Ruvain because he's the Bechor, but no, not Ruvain, not Shimon. 
you don't have to be the firstborn to have to to be on this high level. But apparently, it was Moshe and Aaron. And if Hashem is going to put his shechina on certain people, it's because these people are on a certain level to their on their own. So. Um, th- th- these are just some, some explanations. There's also an explanation from the Maharal, the Gor Aryeh in Aleph Tesvav. He explains, um, he talks about the idea that in, in Shemos there's, there's plenty of anonymity, something that we spoke about last week a little bit. But the main idea that, the, that comes out of the Maharal is that your name really doesn't make you, but you make your name. Right, so when it came to um, um, you know, um, um, sorry, um, Moshe and Aaron, they didn't become who they were because of any lineage that they had. It was specifically because they were who they were, not because of where they came from. So there's a lot to be said about that. But again, really not what we're focusing on tonight. So let's just go back to the section. So number one is the debate between Hashem and Moshe resuming. Number two is the lineage of Reuven, Shimon, and then Levi up until Moshe and Aaron. Then uh, number three is the intro to the plagues, right? The sticks turn, turning into snakes. We have the miracle within a miracle that Aaron's staff swallows all the other sn- the snakes or staffs of the Egyptians. Then we get all the Mako section four. I have his dam and... Svardeya, Kinim, Arov, Devashchin, Barad. So that and, and the, the, the parsha ends with the end of Makas Barad. Now that's that that's strange. Strange uh, for a number of reasons. It's strange for the reason that why aren't all the ten Makos in one parsha? And the other question is even if you want to break up the Makos somehow, if we, we would probably come up with a couple of different options. Maybe to break it up 50-50. Put five in one Parsha, put five in the next Parsha. Or we would have done something that would at least keep to the, to the sets of Makos. Right? We know from the Pesach Seder, Rabbi Yehuda had Tatsach, Adash, Ve'achav, right? the three sets of Makos, three, three, and four. So you would think, right, that maybe maybe they'll very maybe put the entire last set in the new parsha. Well if it would do it would, if it would have done that, then Barad would have been in the next parsha, where Parsha's bow is. We don't have that. Barad, so Maka number seven is where we finish. At least we would have finished we should have thought to finish by Maka number six. So that's a question that I want you to think about for now. And so that's one of the questions. And here are the other large picture questions that we have to address. You ready? Okay, hold on tight. One big question that's a famous question on our Parsha that you can't understand the Parsha if we don't answer this question. Now, what, I, what I'm about to do is I'm about to, be, I'm about to ask three more questions in addition to the question of why did we stop the Makos before they were finished? Right? Why end Va'era, where we end it? Why not put all the Makos here? So, in addition to that question, there are three large picture questions that we have to address. And the panoramic view that we always take of the Parsha will be the route to our answer. So, keep that in mind. Again, sorry. Now, the famous question, the famous question that a bunch of Mepharshim address is, you know, we talk about Hashem hardening the heart of Paro. So we have to wonder what exactly that means and if, if, if it's really fair that Hashem does this, right? Because if Hashem is hardening the heart of Paro, is he removing or in any way withholding Paro's Bechira Chavshis, his free choice? And if so, is that fair? So we're going to touch on some of the Mepharshim that asked this question, but what I want to, you to also think about beyond that is why does Hashem do this? Why does Hashem harden the heart of Paro. Whether or not it's fair, 
is a, is a discussion. I don't know how, how uh, much of the Mepharshim directly just the question of why Hashem does this. I think the Rambam a little bit alludes to it, but that's a question that I want to tackle tonight. Why does Hashem harden the heart of Paro? What's the agenda? Okay, and now another question. It seems that one of the recurring themes in the Makos is the ability or the inability of Paros Khartoumim, his necromancers, to duplicate the Makos themselves through their necromancy, their black magic, however it is that they do it, whether sleight of hand, whether literal manipulation of nature, separate discussion, Rambam Ramban, not for now. The question is, why did Hashem instruct Moshe and Aaron to perform any wonders that could be duplicated through witchcraft or black magic? Right, we know that they were able to change the sticks to snakes. Okay, so Hashem one upped them by having our own staff eat their staffs. Okay, great. But they were able to copy it. And in fact, the Midrash says that, you know, even the kids, the children in Paro's palace were able to do that. That's like saying, like, hey, even my grandma can do that. You know, so in a sense, Paro was saying that, but he was saying even our babies can do that. So. Why? Why give them a fighting chance? Well, like, what's the point? Don't you want to just blow them out of the water? So well, why, why, does, why, why does Hashem do that? Why does Hashem have them do um, makos that can be duplicated? And then the other question is why, in fact, were all of the makos necessary? There is plenty written on the significance and the meaning and the symbolism of the makos, and surely, since they are there, we can derive and glean a lot of meaning from them, but None of them perhaps fully answer, or it seems at first glance, they don't fully answer the global question of why didn't Hashem you know, do this in a more quick and efficient way? And there are many ways you could do this. You could send Godzilla to destroy all the people, and except for the Jews, of course, and let the Jews leave. Let's say you don't want to kill everybody. Okay, so I know Rabbi Foreman came up with this suggestion, which is a great suggestion. You know, you can kind of just um, hold the Egyptians down, let the Jews go. You know, something kind of like a makas choshech, where they can't see and can't move. Oh, actually, Hashem does do something like that in Parshas Bo next week. Now, why didn't Hashem start with makas choshech and let everyone leave? Right? That, 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 would have, that would have been a great idea. But Hashem seems to spend a lot of time with the blood, the frogs, whether the frogs are frogs or some other creature like a crocodile or, 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 or some other um, a reptile. Unclear. But anyway, whether that, Kinim, Arav, Dever, Shechin, like why is Hashem wasting everybody's time? Um, you know, if, if, if we could say such a thing, maybe we can't. Maybe I shouldn't, but I already said it. So maybe I should take it back. But, but why is Hashem doing that? Why, why, why were all these makos just necessary? Why not one fell swoop, one clean sweep? Why not a one-hit knockout? And then, of course, there's that other question of well, why are we stopping the makos in the middle? Why are we stopping the parsha in the middle of the makos? Okay, so we have a lot of heavy questions, and we're going to try to stay focused as we answer all of them. Okay, ready, set, and let's go. I'm going to give some of the important classical answers that come from our Mepharshim. But, again, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stay focused on that larger goal. What are we trying to accomplish in Parshas of Eira? What are we, not we, what is HaKadosh Baruch Hu trying to accomplish in Parshas of Eira? And how does this contribute to the larger map of the Torah, and the larger map of Sefer Shemos? 
So in terms of Paro's free choice and the hardening of Paro's heart. So there are a few famous approaches. One approach is the approach of the Rambam. Did, in fact, Hashem remove the free choice of Paro? And says the Rambam, yes, indeed he did. Hey, that's not fair. Well, says the Rambam, you can look this up in Hilchus Tshuva, um, and you know, maybe, maybe we'll do a series on that when it's um, obviously much closer to the Amim Narayim. Um, but the, the Rambam says in, in, in Hilchus Tshuva that sometimes a person can make so many bad decisions with his own free choice so much, and commit so much evil that Hashem will block the path of Tshuva and Hashem says, even when, the, the Rambam says, even when the, the, the path of tshuva is blocked, it's never fully blocked. But there, are, um, there is an extent to which Hashem can remove the free choice of an individual. And, and the Rambam says this is within Hashem's rules and it's, it's fair game because a person who has already made so many bad decisions, Hashem has the liberty to take away some of their free choice and says the Rambam, that's exactly what Hashem did to Paro. So that's the Rambam. The Sefarno has an approach that I've loved um, for, for years, ever since I heard it. The Sefarno says that no, in fact, Hashem did not take away Paro's free choice, but if anything, he enabled Paro's free choice. Most normal humans would capitulate to not just a few of the Makos, but even Maka number one, the, the blood. Most of us would have, would have given in. Most humans give in. But Hashem strengthened Paro so that Paro would have the resolve to make a decision that he wanted to make on his own. You kind of see this a little bit in the, in the Makkah of Tzardea at the very end. The Pasuk says that, that Paro saw that there was relief. And so um, Hashem, so Paro um, um, you know, stayed strong and stubborn and, 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 and kept to his original agenda. Right? Hashem enabled Paro to go with whatever agenda he wanted. So Hashem enabled Paro's free choice. Okay, fine. Um, so that, that's the Sfarno. The Ramban says the approach that uh, Paro had free choice, but even though he says he talks about how there was the Brisbane Habasarim, that Hashem said this was all going to happen anyway. So how can you even... Did, did Paro have any free choice in the matter? So the Ramban says that yes, Paro had free choice because um, you know, the, the idea was that Hashem didn't... And I think the Rambam says this um, as well, but that ha- Hashem didn't say which nation necessarily was going to enslave the Bnei Israel. And Paro not only enslaved, but they did avodas perach. The, the affliction was to, to such a level that was not predicted in the Brisbane of Sarim. So we see that Paro overreached, and, and Paro is going to get hit for everything he did in terms of overreaching. So the decisions that he did make, that, uh, that he did make that's what he's, he's particularly punished for. So that is the Ramban. And related to this, there's a, there's a beautiful um, uh, drasha from the, um, the Be'er Yosef, or Yosef Misalant, who talks about the symbolism of the mata turning into the nachash, or the tanin. Um, he says that, that a, a, hand in, a, a staff in the hand of a person, so if someone hits someone with a staff, so they are responsible. But if someone incites a snake against another person, they, according to halacha, the Gemara says, you're not responsible. So the, the comparison of the snake turning into the stick turning into the snake. So the Bar Yosef says, Hashem, in a certain sense, um, um, we, we find that the, that the stick turning into the snake represents Paro taking free reign of everything that was going to happen to the Bnei Israel. Hashem originally held a stick, and that stick said that the Bnei Israel are going to suffer somewhat. 
But then the snake, um, you know, took on a life of its own. That was Paro. And Paro is going to get is going to be responsible. Hashem is is not going to be responsible, but Paro will be responsible for everything that he does. Now, these are just responses to the question of how Paro can be blamed. But what I want to focus on is why would Hashem take away the free choice of Paro? That, or, or if if he is, and let's say he's not. Let's say he's enabling Paro's free choice, but. Why are we so focused on getting Paro's choices, right? Hashem, it's, it's almost like Hashem is, is bending over backwards, either to keep the, the game going, like, it's, it's almost like, you know, imagine there's like a, um, I'm trying to think of, a, of what sports game, where just put them out of their misery, just finish it already, just end it already, and you'll, and, and, you know, end the game, and just win already. Why are you, like, making him suffer? I guess the only thing I can think of is, is a wrestling match, um, at least right now, where you, you'll keep taking down your opponent and getting points for it, and then you'll get off him and let him get up, when you could have just easily pinned him, you could have just finished it, but instead you decided to keep on racking more points. So, like, it's, it's, it seems that Hashem is just, he wants to keep the game going. Whether he's enabling Paro's free choice, whether he's withholding Paro's free choice, and, and, and apparently we're assuming that's fair, so, why, um, why is Hashem so bent on, I'm not doing this unless, you know, Paro on his own decides that he wants to change his mind, but otherwise I'm going to keep him, I'm going to keep strengthening him. So that's, that's one thing to think about, and this will start already to answer the other question, why would Hashem instruct Moshe and Aaron to perform makos that were easy to duplicate through black magic? Right. Um, apparently, the, the Hashem didn't intend on doing that the whole time. Right. Imagine if every wonder that Hashem um, um, had Moshe and Aaron do was something that could be duplicated by black magic. Obviously, he wouldn't win. Right. That's that's Hashem limiting himself severely, and the point will never be made that Hashem is better than than Paro and that there's no competition. Yet Hashem gives the illusion of a competition. Right? Why would why would you do such a thing? Why would you even make them think that they have a fighting chance? Why? Why, why do that? It seems that this might have actually been part of the hardening of Paro's heart, part of the process. Maybe if Hashem didn't do anything magically to harden Paro's heart, and maybe that's a question we have to wonder. Did Hashem magically harden Paro's heart, or was it just the antics? Was it just Hashem's antics and strategy that caused Paro's heart to harden? I don't know. I don't know if antic is the word. I would say probably... Um, Tactic is probably the better word, even though it sounds similar. But antics really means jokes. It's not, Hashem is not is not playing jokes here, but it's 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 the it's the methodology, the 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 the, the decisions of Hakadosh Baruch Hu perhaps caused Paro's heart to harden. I don't know if anyone says this, but think about it. Your heart would harden also if someone tried to convince you by uh, by performing things, by doing tricks that you were completely able to do yourself. Right, why give the magicians this fighting chance? And one thing to think about is that part of it is that, yes, the illusion of the fighting chance was exactly what Hashem was going for. Maybe this is part of the hardening of the heart. Um, I know that, that um, one, one thing I'll point out parenthetically is that the Rev Hirsch has a really unique read into the Makos that, but regarding the Khartoumim. The Rev Hirsch has, a, has an approach that the Khartoumim were not able to duplicate any of the, the Makos. Now you'll say, what? The Pesukim say that they couldn't copy it. So look at Rav Hirsch, look at how he reads the Pesukim. Your mind will be blown. But I'm going to go with the assumption that they were able to duplicate. Uh, and according to that approach, that they were able to duplicate the Makos. So 
Pashtus Lafi Chazal, I think the Rabbeinu Bachia says this, is that Hashem wanted to get Paro into the game. He's trying to get Paro into the game. Hashem wants the competition. Hashem wants them, because guess what? If, if Hashem gets them going, right, to, to get them arrogant and to get them thinking, oh, look, we can do this, this is easy. So Hashem starts with, with, with tricks that they can copy to get them invested in the game, and then He's going to blindside them in a second. But the goal is that they should think that they're winning. Why? Because Hashem wants Paro not to give in, it seems, to coercion. But it seems that Hashem wants Paro, part of at least, part of the process that Hashem is attempting right now, is to get Paro to admit defeat. And he's not going to admit defeat unless he begins thinking that he's got a chance. And this is the irony. If Hashem would blow Paro's mind from the beginning. Hashem could kill Paro. He doesn't do that. Hashem could get. Hashem can get get what he wants with you know by just sending Godzilla. Hashem could do all these things. It seems that Hashem is bent on getting a certain acquiescence, not just an acquiescence, but a, but a, but a, an admit of defeat from Paro. Hashem is working very much towards this goal. Part of that is to give them the illusion that they are actually winning in the beginning. Okay, now why we still have to answer that question? And that's where we come back to our final question of why were all of the makos necessary? Just do choshech and let everyone go. Just do arov and let everyone go. Just do dever, let everyone go. And except instead of hitting all the animals, hit all the people. Or again, if you don't want to kill anyone, just, you know, just hold, hold the Egyptians down and let, it, let everyone go. So the, the first thing that I will... Um, I will explain to answer this question from the beginning is going back to Moshe Rabbeinu's debate with Hashem. Right? We, we have to remember that Moshe does not just have Paro to deal with, but he has his own people, the Bnei Israel. Right? It seems to be, we think the goal the whole time is get the Bnei Israel out of Egypt. But Hashem apparently is not forcing them to do that. That's not Hashem's goal. Hashem's goal is not to, to force anyone to do anything, apparently. As much as you think of Hashem as being a tyrant who's just trying to control everyone, Hashem is going out of his way to not do that, in fact. Hashem is trying to give everyone a choice. And the Bnei Israel, we see at the beginning, were not even hearing it from Moshe. Originally in Shmos, they bowed, they had a lot of emuna. But when the going got tougher, right, when their, when their, when their workload got greater, so we know that they no longer listened to Moshe, and they were very upset with him. Says the Pasuk, That's Perak Vav Pasuk Tas. So, we're stuck. Now, this might explain another Pasuk. Deepsukim later in Pasuk Yud Gimel, Vaidabra Hashem Moshe Vialaron, Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Vaitzavim El Bene Israel Vial Paro. And he commanded to the Bene Israel and to Paro, Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Mitzrayim, Lovisias Bene Israel, to remove the Bene Israel, Meiris Mitzrayim, to take them out of Mitzrayim. He commanded to Paro, or who first? To the Bene Israel. There are two audiences, clearly, to the Makos. This is not just for Paro. This is for the Bnei Israel too, who were apparently not ready yet to leave. 
Imagine if there was a Makas Choshech, but no one was ready to leave. Makas Choshech wouldn't be helpful. The Bnei Sral apparently need to see this too. In fact, I'm going to make the argument that they needed to see it more. Everything that's about to happen in Mitzrayim. Right? The Egyptians who are about to die, the Egyptians who are about to be left behind in just two Parshios from now, really that the Bnei Sral start leaving in Parsha's bow. So they are not as important as we're going to see. It, yes, Hashem is trying to get an admit, um, you know, a confession of defeat from them, a concession from Paro and the Egyptians. But Hashem is not doing this without the Bnei Yisrael. Right, let, 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 let's backtrack a little bit. We said that there has to be a process, right? We said, we asked the question, was the Exodus just one big setup? That was last week's question. And when we were addressing that question, we explained that just like there has to be an Olam Hazeh before there's an Olam Haba, there has to be a Golis before there's a Geula, and all of this is part and parcel with Hashem being able to bestow on His people the ultimate good, right? The same ultimate good for which the entire world was created, the same ultimate good for which, although Hashem had to, had to disqualify the rest of mankind who had really disqualified themselves, through one, one human and eventually one nation, the entire world can receive blessing. That was going to be the Bnei Israel. But the Bnei Israel, they kind of went on this downward spiral when the Egyptian exile began. And that is because birthing a nation is not just a one, two, three process. They themselves became spiritually debased to a certain degree. There were certain things they maintained. Certain, um, there's a certain level that they maintained, but a certain level that they dropped everything. And now... They, Hashem's nation, and these are Hashem's nation, this is Hashem's nation because Hashem promised it to their forefathers, which is why Hashem is coming out of the sky to fend for them right now. But they too have to be reintroduced to Hashem. And what we are going to see is that Hashem is trying to introduce himself to two parties, Paro and the Egyptians on the one hand, but more importantly, the Bnei Israel on the other. And that would explain, that begins to explain why this nation, Hashem's chosen nation, has to see the competition unfold between Paro and the necromancers on the one hand and HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the other. Even though, of course, there's no competition. But the people need to see it unfold. They need to see the battle. They need to see the showdown. They need to see the sports event take place. So right there in the arena, we start getting all of these makos. All these makos where one by one, Right, so just to talk about some of the symbolism of the Makos, the, um, the, some of the Mepharshim talk about the Midah Kneged Midah of the Makos, how each Maka represents something that the Egyptians did to Bnei Israel. This is a Midah Kneged Midah is a great way to teach lessons. Rashi, according to Chazal, right, Rashi, this is Rashi to Ches Yud Zayin. He talks about from the, he quotes the Tanhuma in Bo, um, Dalid, where there's a whole war format. The Hashem used the Makos in the way of, of war. For example, the shouting is represented by the frogs. Usually there's a war cry. And the Arov represents, you know, the, the, the attack. There's a, there's a lot of symbolism, certainly. And we know that Rav Hirsch has the famous idea that a lot of people will quote at the Seder, I think, or maybe they don't, but I, I like to quote it, um, that the three sets 
um, represent Geras, Avdus, and Inui. So each ma- each set of Makos has a one, two, and a three. And there's a Geras, an Avdus, and an Inui. There's the estrangement, there's the, the labor, and then there's the affliction. All of these are represented by the Makos. And so, of course, there is, there is, a, there is symbolism to each of the Makos. But all of that said, there's also, we you know, the three sets that Hashem explicitly says in the Chumash, first set is that you should know that I'm Hashem. That's the first lesson. Paro asked the question last week's Parsha, who is Hashem that I should listen? Right? We were talking about names. Paro didn't even know the name Hashem. Keep that in mind. We talk about Shemos, the whole concept of names. Paro questioned what Hashem's name even is. I don't even know who this guy is. So the first lesson of the Makos apparently is that I'm Hashem. You should know that. Second is that there's no one like me in the land. The third set, sorry, the, so the second, sorry, I, I just spoiled the third one. The second one is that, that you should know that I'm in the land. And the third one is that you should know that there's no one like me in the land or anywhere else. And we can talk about how each set of makas represents that. I'm not going to focus on that right now. But what I want to focus on is, again, the question, one of the questions that we asked regarding makas um, dever, for example. Okay, you can kill everyone with dever. Why doesn't Hashem send just one big maka? Right? So, if you don't want to take the answer from me, everything I set up until now, and maybe you're like, where, where are you getting this from? Do any of the Mepharshim say it? Does, does, do you have a Rashi that says it? So, I will tell you, Hashem says it. It's in the Chumash. Some, sometimes you need Rashi to give you an answer to something. This isn't, and the truth is Rashi elaborates on this, but it's open psukim. Let me show you. So right here, um, towards the end of our parsha, actually, before we get to the end of our parsha, look at Parak Zion, Pasuk, Gimel. I don't always have a Chumash in front of me when I do Parsha Panorama, but when I do, you know it's going to be great. Vani Aksha, slave Paro. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. Why? I'm going to increase, I'm going to add on, I'm going to do a lot of signs and wonders in Egypt. Right there, Hashem is letting the cat out, the cat out of the bag. If you weren't sure before, Hashem tells you, Hashem is laying out His plan. He's saying, I'm specifically doing this on purpose because I want to put on a really great show. Hashem is saying this to you. Okay, now skip to Perak Tess and look at Pesukim. Tess Vav and Tess Zion, 9, 15, and 16. And this is just before Makas Barad. Okay? Says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ki ato shalachti es yadi, v'ach oschav es amcha badover v'atikochei minaretz. Says Hashem, for now I could have sent my hand and stricken you and your people with the pestilence. The same pestilence that I just brought on your animals. I could have brought that on you and your people and you would have been wiped out of the land. Hashem right there saying, I could have done that. So why didn't I, says Hashem? V'ulam. And however, in truth, Ba'avorzos, for this reason, He'amarticha, I've kept you standing. Ba'avor haroscha eskochi, in order that I should demonstrate my strength. Ulaman saper shimi b'chol aretz. And in order that saper, people should tell over, Sounds a little bit like Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Ulaman Saper. What do I want people to tell over? Shimi, my name, Bechal Aretz. Remember my name? Or maybe you don't remember my name because you said you've never heard my name before. Right, Paro? Who's Hashem that I should listen? 
Well, no one's going to forget my name anymore, says Hashem, after I'm done with you. But we're just getting started. This is an educational process. Right? Where we're, you know, Hashem is not just shutting everyone down. He's, he's, he's taking us to school. All of us. Hashem says, I have a story to tell. And you know who's going to tell it else? You know, everyone else is going to tell it. Everyone's going to be telling my story. This is a theme that we're going to come back to. But this is part of the B'nai Yisrael being introduced to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Of course, you know, obviously Paro being introduced. But this is, this is what it's about. And if, if you're still wondering about that final question, right, that question of why did we stop the Parsha, Parsha's era right here, by Makas Barad, right, Makas Barad came, it went, Paro hardens his heart once again, and then we just continue with another Maka. Next week is going to be Makas Arba, the plague of locusts. Why are we stopping in the middle of the Makos? Why are we stopping in the middle of a set? So, for that, you'll have to tune in next week for Parsha Panorama, Parsha's bow. But in the meantime, we see that we have our work cut out for us, some questions for you to think about, but also so we understand that this is not just an arbitrary story, very clearly. There's a methodology I, I encourage you to go back to the Pesukim. Just read the Pesukim. Read them like you've never read them before. And let, 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 let Hashem tell you his story, because that's actually what Hashem is trying to do. And this will get us back to the ultimate goal, the ultimate good that Hashem wants to give us. Part of that, go- that good is for us to understand how to make decisions. And we make our decisions based on knowledge, not based on coercion, but based on knowledge and understanding of who Hashem is. And this is the Parsha where Hashem begins to teach us all who He is. Thanks for tuning in to Parsha Panorama. Thanks for joining us at the database. And we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos.